Hi everyone. It's always a joy to look up and see a full room these days, which is very encouraging. Uh, please have your Bibles open there, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, you'll see a sermon outline there as well, which will help you along as we go through. You'll see where we're up to. Um, let's pray in just a moment, but I also just need to mention uh, that it's the sad occasion that Jackson Tiddy is his last Sunday with us. Uh, he's been part of this church for decades now, I think growing up here. And so we should pause and pray and thanks God, thank God for him. He's moving down to Shoalhaven uh, and going to be working down there. So let's uh, pray as we come to God's word and uh, pray for Jackson. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, that you bring us together as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, through the death and resurrection of your Son. We praise you that we can gather together as a sign and symbol of that wonderful thing you have done for us. Uh, and we pray that when people go from out, out from us, that we would uh, mourn, that we would be sad, that we would recognize the significance uh, when a brother or sister has to move away for this reason or that. And so at this time we pray for Jackson. We thank you for our fellowship with him and the way that uh, he has grown up here following you uh, and encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that you would help him to find a faithful church down there and continue to work hard as for you in the job you've given him. Uh, and we pray that you would uh, one day reunite us, even if that is on the last day. We pray now as we read your word that you would remind us of that last day as we think about uh, the resurrection of Jesus and ours and that you would give us great encouragement and, uh, and great challenge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder, how often do you reflect on the resurrection of Jesus? Uh, if That Jesus rose from the dead. If you were filling out a survey, and imagine this is the question in the survey, there's a multiple choice there, answer there for you. I won't get you to have a show of hands, don't worry. Uh, but you can answer this to yourself. How often do you reflect on the resurrection of Jesus? Never, rarely, often, or let's say weekly, or daily. Uh, what if the question was this, slightly different? How often do you reflect on you being raised from the dead when Jesus returns? Would your answer change? Never, rarely, often, or daily? Maybe you're here and you don't even know that thinking about the resurrection and reflecting on it is actually something that's worth doing. But maybe for a lot of us, we don't know the joy and the encouragement that we're missing out on because we don't reflect on it enough. We don't think about Jesus raised from the dead and what that means for us when we will be raised on the last day. Well, we're in a three-week mini-series on 1 Corinthians, as Ming said before, flowing out of Easter Sunday. We've remembered Good Friday, the death of Jesus for our sins, and that he was then buried and then, on the first Easter Sunday, rose to life. But he rose back to life. This is really important. He rose back to life in such a way that he will never die again. That's actually a remarkable thing and an insane thing to believe in, isn't it? He wasn't resuscitated to live for a few years longer and then die again. He was raised never to die again. Never decaying raised immortal, the first and only person to have ever done this, to ever experience this. 
And so hopefully we have at least last week reflected on the wonder that Jesus rose from the dead in his resurrection and found joy in that. But if you are new with us or you weren't here last Sunday, uh, or if you've never thought of the significance of Jesus' resurrection, then first of all, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15, which we're reading tonight. But also you can go back and listen to our sermon from last week from Phil, our senior minister. It's, it's so important to get the resurrection right. As well as the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago, Jesus' resurrection is the most important event in all of history. You cannot ignore the resurrection. You can't pass it off as irrelevant. And so last week we looked at the first 19 verses of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where the Apostle Paul, he spells this out. And he gives us this wonderful significance of Jesus' resurrection. What do we see there? We saw Paul say to the Corinthians, that's the Christians in the city of Corinth in Greece, he said to them, remember the gospel. Remember the good news that I preached to you, the gospel that saves you. Jesus died for your sins, he says. And he rose again according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to many witnesses This is the gospel, the good news you heard and believed in. So, he says to the Corinthians, how can some of you say, therefore, if that's the gospel, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There is no future day when Christians, those who believed in Christ, are raised physically for eternal life. How can you say that, Paul says? So, Paul was convincing them. Don't you realize, he says, if you deny that there is no resurrection of the dead on the last day, then Jesus himself hasn't been raised. And that comes with all sorts of problems. And then we saw a few of those last week. But now, Paul, he shifts in his discussion. Look at verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Before he was saying, this is what would be true if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Now he says, this is what is true. Because Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead. He states, this is what is true and this is what will be true because Jesus has been raised. Because Jesus was raised, these are the things we must hold on to. So come with me. We're going to look at this middle part of the chapter next week. We'll look at the end. Uh, but we're looking at the bit we read out before. If you follow along in your outline, you'll see I've broken it up. And please have a Bible handy as well. You can follow along, follow along there. But you'll see that the first thing we see here is that because Jesus rose, he is the first fruits of the harvest. Who here loves mangoes? Stick your hand up in the air nice and high because if you love mangoes, you are not ashamed of it. Am I right? You love mangoes. You're proud of it. You love talking about it. You annoy the people around you who don't really care for them. Mango lovers are are very bold. I love mangoes. They're they're the king of all fruit. My fellow mango appreciators, you will understand what I'm about to describe. That time where you eat your first mango of the season. The weather is warming up. The holidays are just around the corner. You walk through the shops and you, you notice, oh, there's Christmas decorations going up. But then you see it the mango display in Woolworths. What do you do? You go up straight away and you take in the aroma. The aroma that comes from the display 
from all these mangoes. You, you pick up one and you hold this precious jewel in your hand. You go to the register and you don't care how much it costs. It's $10, but you don't care. You don't mind paying $10 for the first mango of the season. You take it home, you, you carefully cut it, you savour every bite, every sweet mouthful. And then with, with satisfaction and joy and excitement in your heart, you think to yourself, this first precious mango is the beginning of something great. It holds promise for a whole summer of feasting on the king of fruits, the delicious ripe mango. Maybe you don't love mangoes. And so maybe the beach is a better metaphor for you. Your first uh, trip to the beach at summer, that first swim, it holds promise, doesn't it? For a whole summer long of enjoying the beach and the sun. That's the picture we get here. Look at verse 20. Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrection, Paul says, is the first fruits. And it's not mangoes or the beach, going to the beach. It's actually a farming image. Not many of us are farmers, so that's why mangoes or the beach are easier to relate to for us. But, but it's actually a powerful image. Think about it for a moment. As the farmer works hard to sow his seed into the ground and tend his soil, well, he sees his work paying off as it, as it shoots and begins to grow up the grain or the tree or the fruit. Slowly, day by day, week by week, it grows until it's ready for the first fruits to be checked. The first taste of what's to come. And that first, that first head of grain or that first apple from the tree, it holds promise for the rest of the harvest. It, it's the guarantee ensuring the rest. And Paul says this is what Jesus' resurrection is. First fruits. The first fruits that holds promise for the harvest to come. The first fruits that guarantees that this harvest will one day come. And what is that harvest? The harvest is us. It's those who believe in Jesus, it's those who belong to Him. It's being it's us being raised physically from the dead, just as He was. Listen to how he puts it in verse 21. Paul, he gives us the backstory to all of this. And when I mean backstory, I mean he goes right back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. And he talks about Adam, the first man, the one who sinned and brought God's judgment. Death came into the world. Look at verse 21. It's a, it's a little complicated, but follow with me. It says, verse 21, For since death came, came into the world through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, raised from the dead. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, he rose first, then afterward, at his coming, the harvest. Those who belong to him. What's he saying? He's saying before Jesus rose from the dead, all of us faced death. Why? Because of Adam. Because of his original sin. Because we are all in Adam. 
We belong to Adam. Adam, the first man, the representative of all humanity and all of us, Adam sinned. And so the right punishment was death and a world that is full of death. Death for all who came after him. And so all those who belong to Adam, that is, every human being faces death. We don't get a say in the matter. This is the curse of sin that God has put on this world. That's our understanding as Christians. I hope, I hope you know that. I hope you think about that regularly, as, as awful as it is. I hope it shapes your, your view of the world, because our world is fallen. It, it isn't what it should be. As good as some of it might seem, it's corrupted. It's cracked and broken. It's subject to chaos and decay and pain. It's not good. And death, most of all. Death, most of all, that's the biggest part of that, isn't it? That brokenness. Human death is the most disturbing and most devastating reality of this fallen world. But then, Paul says, there was another man. Jesus is the man who did what none of us could do, overcome death. He didn't sin, like, he didn't sin against God like Adam did. And so his death on the cross could pay for our sin. And, more than that, he rose from the death. He rose from the dead. He bested death. He mastered it. Because he didn't stay dead. And so anyone who is in Christ, it says here, anyone who belongs to him, this passage says, will be made alive, will be physically raised to life forever with him. Just like him, we too will overcome death. When does that happen? What does it say? Look at uh, verse 23. It happens at his coming. When Jesus comes again, when he returns in glory to judge all and to bring in a new creation, we will be physically raised to eternal life. You see, Jesus' resurrection, it is the basis for our future resurrection. He is the first fruits. It's the, it's the assurance of our resurrection and eternal life. Because we are the harvest. And so there's, there's an, a, a question that must be asked at this point for every person in the quietness of their own heart. And it's this, are you in Christ? Do you belong to him? Have you, as it says at the very beginning of this chapter, we saw it last week, have you received the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Have you taken your stand on it? In Paul's words, have you grabbed a hold of the message of Jesus and believed it in your heart? If you have, then the wonderful news is that having been forgiven of all your sin, this is now your future. Being physically raised, made alive, just like your Lord on the day that he returns. And so we can let his resurrection, as we reflect on it, Fill us with joy and peace and hope as we look forward with great assurance that we too will be raised. But if you have not 
done that, received and believed the gospel, then you are still in Adam, not Christ. You still belong to Adam and your destiny is the same as his, death. Death and facing God's judgment for your sin. But here, God holds out the offer of grace to you. If you hear the good news of Jesus, believe it, receive it, take your stand on it, then death is not the end for you. The promise of being raised to life is yours. That is the love and grace of God that he offers to you today. So please consider that offer and please take it up, just as so many of us here have. This is why the gospel is good news. Jesus is the first fruits. We are the harvest. Jesus' resurrection guarantees ours if we belong to him. And we should give him great praise for that. But now, uh, Paul has more to say. He's got more to say on Jesus' resurrection and what it means. It's not the whole story. So look at verse 24. He goes on and he says, Then comes the end. When comes the end? When Jesus comes and raises those who belong to him. That's what he's just said. At that point, Paul says, the end comes. It's the end of the world as we know it. If Phil was here, he would want me to sing the REM song with those words, but he's on holiday, so I won't do that. Sorry if that's disappointing for you. Uh, But let's look briefly at this next part together. Uh, We'll look at it more briefly than the last part. The story continues, verse 24. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. What's Paul saying here? He's giving a big picture of history and what God is doing in the world. What is God doing in the world? What is he doing in history? He's establishing his kingdom, his good rule over all things. And he's done this most of all by sending his son, hasn't he? To be born of a man, to be born a man, to be the king of his kingdom, to be the promised Messiah, the Christ. And so as we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's exactly who Jesus is, isn't it? Jesus is the Son of God, the man that God the Father has appointed as King, as Lord over all. And that's what the next few verses are about, verse 25 and on. They pick up these promises from Psalm 8, which we read before, and Psalms like Psalm 110. God's promise is what's picked up here. The promise that the Messiah, God's King, will be given all authority in heaven and on earth. And that he would bring all things in creation, all powers, all authorities, all angels and demons, and even all people under his feet. That is, under his rule and his authority and his control. You see, from Jesus' first coming, the first Christmas, until his second coming, that is Jesus' job. That is his mission, to take everything and everyone and make it subject to himself, to him as king. And so what does he do? He lives a perfect life, sinless. He dies the death that we deserve for our sin, and then he rises again so that the gospel might then be proclaimed to all the nations 
and people might find salvation and submit themselves under him as their Lord and King. And he defeats Satan and all his power. And when he returns, he will be the judge and he will rule over even those who refuse to believe in him, who refuse to believe the gospel. And then he will bring an end to this creation and bring about a new creation and all of it will be perfectly under his rule and authority. All things will be back in their right place. Perfect justice will be done and there will be peace. And it's Jesus who will do it. This is what we've been thinking about in Revelation, the book of Revelation recently, isn't it? That's what Jesus will do. That is his job and mission. But then it says, look at verse 28. It says, And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, God the Father, so that God the Father may be all in all. That language can sound complicated, but it's saying God the Father is the one who has put the Son, Jesus, in charge of everything. And once Jesus has done everything and everything is under his feet, then Jesus, that's God the Son, he will hand everything back to God the Father. Why? So that God the Father might be all in all. So that he might be rightly praised and given all the glory for all he's done. So that he might have all the power and dominion and honor that he should rightly have for all of this. The Apostle Paul uh, puts it in a different way uh, in another letter, Philippians 2. He says, Every knee will bow, hopefully you know these words, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what end? To the glory of God the Father. That's the final goal of all things, of all creation, all history, the glory and rule and praise of God the Father through Jesus. Now, why is Paul talking about all of this? Why does he bring it up? It feels like he's changed topic at this point, but he hasn't. Look closely at verse 25 again, because we can see it there. He says, For he, Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. We just saw that. Verse 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. See, Paul is still talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he is still explaining the significance, why it matters that Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus rose again, he conquered death. He won the victory and put death under his feet. And so when he returns, when he comes, he will abolish death, the very last enemy that we face. He will abolish death for us, his people, fully and finally. Because he rose from the dead, he will save us from death, that last and greatest enemy. So yet again, Paul is saying that our hope as Christians is certain. Our eternal security is sure because Jesus rose from the dead. Praise God for that. And praise God that the reign of death 
will one day end. Because death reigns over all things, doesn't it? It takes every life. It causes constant distress and pain. But Jesus has risen. Jesus has won and those who trust in him will win like him and be raised to eternal life. How much richer would our faith and life be if we reflected on that just a little bit more? Well, perhaps uh, if the Corinthians, or, or even if we perhaps think that um, this is all really nice, Paul, but I'm not really sure if I'm that interested in it, or, or, or um, we might think, oh, it doesn't really affect my life that much, Paul says, no. Uh, in the last part of the passage, Paul shows us how this does impact life now. Paul shows us how it affects our lives. The resurrection of Jesus, our hope of being raised like him, it makes all the difference to how we live now. So let's finish with these last words of the passage and how we respond to all this. The first way Paul says this affects us is actually, it's kind of hard to think of how it affects us because what he says is very, very obscure and hard to understand. I wonder if you noticed that before, if you were like, what what is he even talking about there? In verse 29, have a look there. He says, he talks about people being baptized for the dead. What on earth is baptism for the dead? When we baptize people up here, they're generally living at the time. So what is he talking about? Well, many people have debated this idea and put many ideas forward for what it could mean. You know, was it, was it that some of the members of the church became Christians and then really soon afterwards they, they had suddenly died in an accident or something and they, they hadn't been baptized yet? And so other members of the church were baptized on their behalf. Was that what happened? That seems a strange thing to have happened considering everything else that Paul says about the gospel, about baptism. Uh, or was it, was it some kind of cryptic way of just talking about normal baptism and Paul is just choosing to be a little bit obscure at this point? Or, or was it something totally else? There, there is like 40 or more options for what people suggest. And that's just too much to go through right now. Here's the problem we face with these verses. First, it, it's a vague description. Paul says nothing about who these people are or why this might happen. Nothing. Second, there is no other mention of baptism for the dead in the rest of the Bible or even even, uh, early church history. Nothing. And so it makes it really hard, doesn't it? If not impossible, to say what's going on here. We will have to ask Paul on the last day or one of the Corinthians who were part of the church at the time. But even if we're unclear as to what they were doing, Paul's big point is not unclear. If the dead are not raised at all, if there's no resurrection in the end, well, there's no point doing this thing, whatever that thing was that we're doing. The big point stands, the resurrection impacts life now. It makes you do things you otherwise wouldn't do, and it makes you not do other things that you might otherwise do. The resurrection makes you live for that day and that and the world to come, not this world. And so it impacts how you live. And Paul actually, he uses this same thinking in the next example he gives. Look at verse 30. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, why am I in danger all the time? Or verse 31, why do I die every day? Or verse 32, why do I fight wild animals in Ephesus? He says, 
He's saying, why do I bother suffering for the gospel? If we have no hope of being raised like Jesus, why risk my life traveling all around the world, Paul says, to preach the gospel? Why endure persecution from the gospel, from men who attack me like like wild beasts? If we're not raised in the end, after all this struggle, well, it would just be better to eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, he says. To just live it up and enjoy life instead of facing the pain and struggle that I face every day, trying to preach the gospel to people, trying to proclaim Jesus. That's Paul's attitude if the dead are not raised. It's like we saw last week, if we are not to be raised like Jesus was, then our faith and anything we say about Jesus is pointless. You see, the resurrection gives us reason to believe and it gives us reason to speak. The gospel is that Jesus did rise, rose from the dead and defeated it, abolished it, so that in the end, all those who belong to him will rise too. And the resurrection gives us, therefore, reason to persevere. Because we have that hope, not in this life or in this world, where we can endure anything in this world, anything that this world can throw at us. We can persevere through the pain of telling people about Jesus and the persecution we might face. We can endure through any suffering that we go through because we're trying to be godly. We can do that because we can look to Jesus raised from the dead as our hope and strength and our future. And so Paul says, as he finishes off, he says, snap out of it, Corinthians. He's really blunt with him. Look at verse 33. He says, don't be deceived by these liars. Don't be led astray by those who would deny that Jesus rose from the dead or that we will not be raised from the dead when he returns. He says, they are bad company. They will corrupt you. He says, if you tolerate their false teaching, then you will be like them. So don't. Don't listen to them. Instead, challenge and rebuke them. And for the Corinthians, that was people in their own church who needed to repent of believing and acting on these false truths. Going back to those opening words of the chapters, what does Paul want the Corinthians and us to do? He wants us to hold on to the gospel as it has been proclaimed by him in the scriptures and not be led astray by any teacher or any philosophy that would try to explain away these things. He says, look at verse 34. He says, come to your senses and stop sinning. Wake up and don't be led astray by these things or or be dulled into a life of sin. No, live in light of that hope you have. Live for that day Jesus returns and raises us all. Because we, we have an incredible future hope. We look... We look back to Jesus raised from the dead and then we look forward to us being raised like him. And so it impacts life now. And everything we do, looking forward to that day with zeal, with hope. All of life is to be lived in joy and perseverance and in hope, looking forward to that day when we are made alive, raised like him. And even death 
It's under Jesus' feet. And all of this will be for the glory of God the Father, who has done and who will do all of these things. How often do you reflect on the resurrection of Jesus? How often do you cast your mind ahead to the day when you will be raised like him? Let's pray that it will be every day until he returns. Our Father, we praise you for the gospel handed down to us uh, from Jesus to his apostles like Paul and from Paul to us through the ages in the pages of our scriptures. We thank you that you still speak to us through that gospel and show us your great love and your holiness and that you give us a great hope because we know Jesus rose and we will too. Father, fill our minds with joy as we reflect on these wonderful things and open our mouths that we might speak it and urge others to believe in Jesus too and join us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.